WFIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Peter Alchul. Welcome to Friends in Art, recording of our podcast. My name is Peter Altschul, and I am the program chair of Friends in Art. Today, we are here to interview Wayne Piercy, a former Friends in Art board member, and more interesting than that, a really wonderful trumpet player. Some of you may remember him from the thing he did for the showcase, and we'll talk more about that later. But in the meantime, welcome, Wayne. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So, Wayne, we want to learn about your sort of life and your interest in music and all that good stuff. So let's start from the beginning. Well, um, I was always interested in classical music, even as a a young kid. And um, I remember not formally listening to classical music, of course, but my parents would always put classical music on when I was a kid. And that's how they could put me to sleep. My parents often joked that I didn't sleep for the first four years of my life, which uh, I don't completely doubt that. So <laughs> as I got older, um, you know, my, when I was around four, my dad discovered that I had perfect pitch because he, you know, was noticing that I could hear things in a different way than a lot of people. And my dad was a guitar player. And so he took me out on the uh, front porch one day and he told me, you know, like all the, you know, major, major chords and minor chords, you know, that kind of thing, or, you know, just what notes were. And then he would say, what's this note? And I would say, you know, he'd play it and I'd say B flat. And then he'd say, okay, what's this note? F, you know, okay. So it was like, I was hearing those notes and everything, but I needed a label to attach to it. Sometimes kids go undiscovered uh, having perfect pitch for a while because they don't have those labels that they've attached to they've attached to notes yet. So I think you know that's it's important to make sure kids know those pretty early so that you know you can figure out exactly how good their ear is and 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 that sort of thing. But at any rate, so later we lived in Louisiana for a number of years, and then when we moved back to Texas when I was in fourth grade. I got hooked up with a really good elementary music teacher, and we started formally getting introduced to classical composers. So all the all the greats: Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Haydn. And uh, there was a there was so, a so wait, competition. I'm going to just for a second. Did, yeah, did for sure. School for the blind, or was this a quote unquote regular school? No, I was mainstreamed. I was okay. mainstreamed. Um, okay. Yeah. So this was a mainstream elementary school in the Austin Independent School District. So there was a citywide competition that was going on for elementary school kids called Music Memory. And it was such a cool thing. So basically what they they did, they had a list of 20 or 30 pieces. And it was, you know, part of the regular, you know, music elementary music curriculum to show all the pieces to the to the students. But those who wanted to join the music memory team at the school, they would join the music memory team. And she, she took kids from, you know, fourth and fifth grade, both. And you had to be able to identify um, all the pieces on the list by listening to about 20 seconds of recording. And we had to get, we had to study, man. I mean, we had to take these recordings home and listen to them and uh, really be able to know what the pieces were. And so there was a citywide competition where all these schools participated in that. 
And the students from each school who managed to score at least a 98% on the test, they got what they got a special award. They got a special uh, a pin that they could wear on their shirt, you know, something like that to commemorate the, you know, their achievement. And um, they, it was really amazing because they had a live orchestra playing the examples. So they would play only about 20 seconds of each piece and you had to write it down and you had to submit it to the judges for grading. So that, that was really cool. And it really, really, really got me very much loving classical music. Fourth and fifth grade, we were doing also uh, recorder classes and um, I was really excelling on recorder and getting a really good tone out of it. And um, actually got so good at it for an elementary school kid, at least that the music teacher was, was making me take all the, the squeaky squawky recorder kids out of the class and making, <laughs> making me work with them on hot cross buns and stuff like that. So that was, whew, that was rough. But um, through that, I got a chance to, you know, practice some leadership skills and work on some things like that. And so when sixth grade, you know, rolled around, they were telling us before sixth grade, you know, about band and orchestra. And I was like, you know, I really feel like I want to take band. Um, I tried violin when I was in fourth grade with some private lessons, and that only lasted about three months. I really didn't like the, I loved how the violin sounded, but I didn't like how stringed instruments felt. I didn't like the, the calluses. I didn't like the pressure the, the, with the bow and all of that stuff. It just didn't connect. It just didn't really connect. So, uh, you know, I showed up before sixth grade, you know, band started um, at my middle school and got tested on a bunch, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, when you start band, they usually test you on, on, on instruments to see what you can make a sound on the easiest. And from that point, they kind of narrow down your, your instrument that they think that you should play. So it just so happened that they tested me with a bunch of different instruments and the trumpet was what worked the best. Actually, I started out on a cornet, um, a little con director student cornet. But um, by all intents and purposes, it was a you know took a trumpet style mouthpiece and you know whatnot. Um, and I excelled pretty rapidly as a as a cornet, you know, playing the cornet. And um, about three months after that, um, my dad took me to the grand opening of. Mars Music. I don't know if any of you guys ever remember that music store. Uh, that one, that one, I guess it was a national chain, but it came and went. So it was actually funny because whenever you would call them, they would, uh, if you had a, a question for sales about, about a product or something like that, th they would have you speak to a Martian. <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Anyway, so, so we, uh, Mars Music, the musician's planet, that was their slogan. Um, so I remember going in to the store and um, I had no idea that my dad was going to get me a trumpet. I had no idea. Like I, I just had no clue. And I, I just kept telling dad, like, I want to go check out the trumpets, blah, 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 blah. I want to go check out the trumpets. And he was like, okay, okay. But I've got to, I've got to find a new guitar first. And so, so we were going around and dad spent like a couple hours in the, in the acoustic guitars and stuff like that. He finally found, he finally found one that he wanted. And, and I was like, dad, are, are we ever going to get to the band department? I really want to try the trumpets. So he's like, okay, okay. So we went, 
we went to the band department and there were two there were two trumpets there the guy wanted me to try and you know granted i had only been playing cornet so trumpet was a bit big for me at the time um but he had me he had me try and i was a little i was a little guy back then <laughs> short skinny um just a tiny little kid um so he had me try two trumpets he had me try a student model uh yamaha and a student model halton and um i was really quick to tell that the the student model yamaha really didn't have a good ring to it and um so i picked up the halton and and even though i had a hard time filling up the horn with air i could feel that it was a better instrument the valves were more responsive the 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 horn rang better and uh so you know i was like dad i really want this horn and so um my dad found out how much it cost and um he just bought it um right then and there and uh he whenever i got home um i was so excited i think i ended up sleeping with my trumpet the first couple nights i had it because <laughs> i was just so <laughs> i was just so excited to have you know i was just completely on cloud 9 i mean it was the coolest thing in the world to have a trumpet and my dad i remember him telling me later that day he was like he was like son you know i was going to buy you a trumpet all along didn't you and i was like no really dad and he was like he was like i was absolutely going to i just wanted to surprise you so um that was a, a story that you know about my dad i'll always i'll always remember and and you know always keep with me when i think about my early life you know playing trumpet i remember that and yeah, that and good story. especially with my dad passing it's it's um even more of a significance nowadays so uh just to abbreviate everything i i i played trumpet in you know you know middle school and high school uh band um i started uh playing jazz in 7th grade i had was was already familiar with the concept of improvising because my dad had already been doing that as kind of a country and bluegrass guitar player so my dad was keen on improvisation anyway so you know i wasn't afraid to find little ideas to play on the horn i'll be my skills were a bit limited at that point but when we started playing little tunes in the 7th grade jazz band 7th and 8th grade jazz band you better believe that when it came time to solo my hand was the first one that raised i was practically jumping up and down like pick me pick me i want a solo and so i just jumped in never really gave it you know two thoughts um so i excelled i always maintained maintained first chair um you know middle school when i got to high school um i went to a fine arts magnet for a couple of years and that band program was really competitive and it was there that i really started to learn about soloists about classical and jazz soloists and it was through that opportunity of being excuse me being in that high school band that i learned about wenton marsalis and so let's, my band let's, let's stop just for a second because i want to yeah for sure um so i i have these sort of typical blind questions to ask uh did did you learn a uh, braille music and if you, and and to what extent did you learn through braille music and through by ear um to be honest i didn't have that much braille music support as a kid um mm -hmm. i had i had a little bit um but it was it was it was really hard because the you know the the only person really helping me was 
you know, my VI teacher and uh, I was so slow at, at, at reading it. And, you know, nobody knew like exercises to get me to, you know, uh, translate the notes I was seeing on the page into to sound. And, and, and it was, my ear was so developed even at such a young age that, you know, it was just like, you know, when you're playing in beginning band, you've got like three or four notes that you're working with. And it's just sort of like, well, I can hear this, you know? So I just ended up, and you're, of course, there's so many other trumpets, you're not ever playing alone. So I, I really just didn't get a lot of, of Braille music instruction. And so even to this day, I mostly, I mostly rely on my ears to get through things. So how, how does that work? If you want to learn a new piece? Um, well, there's a couple... Work? There's a couple of things. I mean, um, I'll, I mean, Apple Music is a is a great is a great great resource. I I, I look at these streaming services nowadays as sort of your um, a blind person's digital music store. You know, it's like if we could go into um, you know into a music store that you know just sells printed music and 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 browse and look around. That's what that's what you know digital streaming services are for us. I feel like, and so um, YouTube is also really great. Um, I mean, there. I mean, you can find absolutely anything on YouTube. It's it's absolutely nuts. And uh, I have an app on my phone, actually one that I demonstrated at a MIDI workshop for Friends in Art several years ago, uh, called the Amazing Slowdowner. And I use that a bit, um, especially when I need to uh, deal with uh, passages that are, you know. Di- uh, difficult from a technical standpoint, maybe fingering or maybe uh, hard to hear or otherwise. Um, I can run things through this app and loop sections and really slow things down and um, and and really you know get the uh, get the sense for how that works. I've also had um, I've also done other things in college, like um, I've gotten students who've written uh, pieces for you know, like contemporary chamber ensembles and things like that to send me a, um, an MP3 of the finale playback of, of the, of the music. And I would ask them to turn up the, uh, the trumpet part a little bit because sometimes those instruments, those virtual instruments, they kind of blend together a little bit. So turning them up, um, turning up your part without drowning out the other parts gets you, hearing your part but it also gets you to hear how your part fits in with the rest of the score so let's let's uh continue with your story about meeting uh uh, the marsalises when i was it was my first semester of my freshman year of high school and um i remember uh my it was around finals week and i remember um miss nelson my carol nelson one of the greatest band directors in the entire world um, really challenged us a lot and pushed us to the limit all the time. She was just amazing. Um, anyway, she burned me a CD that year, uh, that, that semester, the end of that semester of, um, it was a compilation disc and it had the, uh, Carnival Venice, uh, that went and did with the, with the Eastman Wind Ensemble. It also had, uh, the Flight of the Bumblebee, uh, Moto Perpetuo, which if you guys don't know that, it's a Paganini. A piece that you know if you're going to play it on trumpet it requires you to circular breathe so not taking not taking the horn off your face to ever catch a breath you're basically breathing in through your nose and out of your mouth at the same time and it's really wild and uh, 
Winton can do it. And it's just, it's just, it's stunning just to say the least. And then um, Napoli uh, variations on a theme uh, Neapolitan song, I guess it's what it's called. It's another cornet solo. Um, and then it had the Haydn concerto, Haydn trumpet concerto and the Hummel trumpet concerto on it. And um, that was my first real foray into classical solo trumpet work. I mean, I had done solo and ensemble in, 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 in middle school. Um, but you know, it wasn't anything like this, you know, like this was another level. And so, um, I, it just really opened my eyes. I mean, it just really opened my eyes as to what the trumpet could do. I just never really knew how far this could go. And, um, this really got me on the path, you know, and, um, I was just immediately just enamored by Winton's playing and I loved, 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 loved his sound. So that January of the next year, I found out about the Link, uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and that, that Winton was going to you know, be with them and uh, he was going to come to, to town. And um, so my mom was saying that I should go, I should go check out the concert. And uh, I, really, I really wanted to go, but my parents couldn't afford tickets for all of us. So my mom my mom bought me a ticket and just be, was basically like, you know, we're going to send you by yourself. We think you can do it. And um, so I was like, okay, um, I'm a little nervous about it, but yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll go try to navigate the theater, you know, like I, I've got to see this guy. So funny thing happened. I went to school and uh, I was talking to Miss Nelson about it. And I was like, yeah, Winton's coming. And she's like, oh, you're going to go see the concert. Oh, that's so great. And I was like, yeah, I, you know, I'm really I'm really excited about about doing this. And um, a couple of weeks later, it was you know a couple of days before the show, and Miss um, Nelson basically told me she was like, "Hey, um, Wayne, I've got a surprise for you. I talked to uh, you know Paul Butel, the manager of the Paramount Theater, and we talked to uh, to Winton's agent, and um, you know we're going to get you into the we're going to get you up in the front rows." And um, you're going to get to meet Winton after the concert. And I just couldn't believe it. And they comped me, Miss Nelson, and my parents, all tickets to the concert. And we were in the fourth and fifth rows. And, uh, you know, Lincoln Center or uh, Jazz Orchestra, I mean, they were just amazing. They did all their, they did a lot of great works, and uh, including uh, one of the pieces from uh, their album, Big Train. Um, and so... So I'm just getting more and more nervous the whole time. And <laughs> Winton comes out and <laughs> if any of you guys have ever heard Winton talk, I mean, he's just got a way, he's just got a way of talking. He just, he came up to me and he's just like, what's going on, brother? And I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And so he takes my horn out of the case, puts it together and he, and he hands it to me. And he's like, all right, now play something for me. And I said, okay. So me and my nervous self, I played the opening of the Carnival of Venice, the Arban version that he recorded with, 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 with uh, his little lick in it. There's a little chromatic run that he adds, uh, one little part of it. Um, and, I, and I played another piece for him that I was working on for a high school solo and ensemble piece. And he stopped me and he said to me, you have a, uh, he said, you have a very soulful sound, a very 
intelligent sound. And I took that with me forever and always knew from that point that my sound was something precious that I needed to always work on. And I always needed to keep track of that soulful feeling that he was talking about. And I knew what he meant right away. And um, it was just, it was, uh, I mean, I'm shaking sitting here talking about it. It's just like, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget, you know, getting to meet him. And uh, he's been an inspiration in my life ever since, ever since then, even though um, in some, some uh, respects, I've gone a little bit of a different direction. Um, Winton has always been number one and always will be. Um, and, and that's just, that's all there is to it. Um, what a story. What a story. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've met, I've met Winton a couple times since, since then. And, and, you know, he always remembers me. Um, he's always been super nice to me. Um, has, has still told me again <laughs> that, that my sound was beautiful. And, um, you know, I would love to spend, you know, a month with him because I, you know, if, if it were ever possible, I mean, I, I would love to just uh, pick his brain on all kinds of things because, I mean, he truly, he is a master and he set the bar for all of us in both styles, in both classical and jazz performance. Um, and he really showed us by example how important it is to have a solid foundation in your classical technique as you pursue other forms of music. So let us continue with your story. Yes, and absolutely. Um, we, we have a long way to go. So um, yeah, yeah. I am. So you got into Berkeley. That must have been. I quite did. A, that must have been that Berkeley's Berkeley was Berkeley College of Music, right? The Berkeley College in, of in Music. Boston. Yeah, a lot of people call uh, it the Berkeley School of Music. Yeah, it is the Berkeley College of the music. Berkeley College of Music. So you went to Boston. Talk about that transition from from Austin to Boston. Well, I actually um, actually went from Louisiana. Oh, Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. So I was there. Uh, we moved back there again in high school. Okay. And um, so moving from Louisiana to, the, to New England is a, is a bit of a transition. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it really, it really is. And uh, it really is. But I was, you know, I was used to the city um, right. because, you know, I'd been in Austin. That's where I was from originally. So I was kind of used to the idea of taking buses and, you know, that sort of thing didn't have subways down there, but they right. definitely had, you know, buses and stuff like that. And, you know, my parents were both blind. So I was used to having to get cabs to go here, there and everywhere. I guess the biggest, you know, transition um, was, you know, just actually, you know, having to deal with a commute to school every single day. Um, my rehab agency, you know, as rehab agencies often do, they, you know, drug their feet and I couldn't get into, couldn't get into the, the, uh, uh, the dorms because they drug their feet on, on getting funding for me. Uh, so I ended up having to live about an hour by train, um, away from school for the first, for the first two years that I lived there, uh, or that I, that I was here, I guess more than the commute, I was having to adjust to, um, Working with a guide dog, um, there was that too. I had just gotten my first dog who actually didn't end up working out. He was a really bad scavenger, always going after food on the ground. And the school actually took him back from me for about a month. And um, they tried to see if they could work, work out his behavior. Um, they thought they had made some progress, but when he came back, he started doing it again. So there was that. Um, 
there was there was that to deal with um there was a there was a lot of other things to deal with i was preparing to get married um i was already engaged by the time i got got into school also i think uh you know there was other big thing to deal with transition wise was you know not having a set uh, you know completely set schedule as in how you have it set you know in high school where it's like you've got like the same seven or eight classes that you take every single day um you know it was like you know you your your schedule changes from you know day to day and you've got to be at all these different places and you know you you've got to make sure you're there and you've got to you know you've got to keep track of more things than you would have in high school and that sort of thing so i think that was a that was a big issue uh but i but i did work it out and um you know it was you know as as most college kids do you figure out a balance and all of that i, I want to talk about the uh, the one of the things that friends and art uh did while you were i at- was just getting to that peter good that's awesome <laughs> that, but, that was where i was going next before before you do that i want to make sure mike mandel is on the call. yeah i'm right here peter okay. because mike really was the person who uh, was was pivotal in making that happen? So uh, between the two of you, could you sort of talk about how that program got started, and how it how it happened, and what the program does? Well, I'll start. Okay. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, you start. Yeah, well, yeah. Wait. So, why don't you start, and then Mike, you can sort of fill in the gaps. Sure. So, so just tying, just connecting this to what I was what I was just talking about earlier, my transition to college life. Um, the next thing I was going to say is that is that I realized that I had no technology support, um, no music technology support. Um, for those of you who don't know much about Berkeley, uh, Berkeley requires that that every student purchase a MacBook Pro bundled with a bunch of with a bunch of software on it that's not accessible. Most of it, um, although that. That has changed a little bit, but um, but but still, a lot of the programs you would get now are still not accessible. Finale being one of them, which is a music notation program. I won't go into all the details, but basically, the the long and short of it is that I was attending these classes, you know, music theory and and ear training and all these other things, and I had no access to um. I had no access to any of the materials that were that were being presented in class, nor did I have access to the books, really. So I was left going to, you know, office hours and having to um, having to, you know, talk to teachers about what it is I needed and doing a lot of assignments orally. So with that, I went to the disability services coordinator at the college and it took a couple of years, honestly, of me going in and voicing my concerns. And finally, in about 2009, he organized a summit. And um, Mike Mandel, who's here on the call, was a part of that. And uh, Gordon Kent and Bill McCann. And Mike, there was a couple of other people there. David Goldstein. Yeah, da- uh, Dave Goldstein. Yeah, that's right. Dave Goldstein was there. And Janice. Janice also. There. Yeah. Yep. And so we, um, you know, Bob Mulvey, who was the uh, assist, uh, the director of disability services at the time, organized all of these people. And another guy from Berkeley, uh, Jack Paracone, was was there, who's the who was the chair of the songwriting department for many years. Um, and so we basically just had a big roundtable discussion and um, kind of talked about what blind students needed and what we weren't getting 
from the experience and how our music education was hindered by the lack of access to course materials and um, lack of access to, uh, you know, books and, uh, you know, assignments and things like that. And so we concluded that the best thing that we could do was to start a music technology lab with accessible programs with a blind instructor to teach those programs to our to our blind students, um, to the blind students that were coming there. And this would, would ultimately replace uh, Berkeley's uh, Intro to Music Technology course that all the sighted students had to take in their first semester. Mike, hopefully you've got more to say. <laughs> sure. Is, uh, at the same time, <laughs> uh, I, I had been a Berkeley School of Music. It was the Berkeley School of Jazz when I went there. And over the years, uh, Berkeley evolved into maybe the foremost uh, school for American music. And this means jazz, classical, uh, bluegrass, R&B. Uh, they were the school. And it occurred to me that for blind folks to make a living in music, we need a school like Berkeley, where we can, uh, where we can get the opportunity to work with contemporary tools and and go out and earn a living. And uh, with my good friend, Jack Paracone, uh, who was on the inside and always helping us, uh, the summit came together. And after two or three meetings up in Boston and disgusting, not disgusting, discussing uh, 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 approaches and so on, Jack got me a meeting with Roger Brown, the president. And in that meeting, I pitched uh, to Roger the idea of forming some kind of situation to support the blind students so they could work alongside their peers. It didn't have to put in all kinds of extra hours uh, just to get a friend's time to maybe copy down, you know, their compositions or their harmony assignments, something like that. Well, it was about a half an hour. Roger listened and he agreed. And thus uh, the program was started. Uh, and Jack and Wayne were the people that really moved it along on the inside. Uh, we had we had Jack maneuvering through the uh, upper echelons to uh, interface with Roger Brown and uh, and other department heads uh, to get feedback and also to educate them. And we had Wayne on the inside with his enthusiasm and talent to kind of point the way of the possibilities of what a blind student can do and what benefit a blind student can derive. And thus, uh, uh, that program has started. It's been around for what, six, seven years now, Wayne? Oh, no. Uh, let's see. Uh, longer than that now, Mike. Uh, we're right? they're approaching, they're approaching their, uh, 10-year anniversary, I believe. Um, okay, well, so it's time to give them a little a little kick in the behind to uh, up the program again to get a little more enthusiasm going uh, from the management point. Uh, now, also, you you were a coach in that program, yes? Yes, that's right. So um, I um, can you explain a little bit how how the program works and who the who the uh, instructors are okay sure absolutely so um, and the materials that are supplied 
Okay. Okay. Perfect. Um, absolutely. So, so we started, uh, the, the program started, our pilot course was a five-week course that started in 2010, summer of 2010. And um, from there, uh, you know, we were, you know, back in the day, we were teaching sonar, which is, which is <laughs> completely dead <laughs> by all intents and purposes. Um, we, uh, we were also hey, Sonar is what? Sonar is a, oh yeah, right. Because there's people that don't know what that is. Sorry about that, guys. Um, sonar is a, or was a recording program. So learning how to record your own, uh, record your own voice or your own instrument or, um, or sequencing uh, parts. So like, uh, you know, playing in, uh, you know, piano, drums, bass, like virtual instruments um, that, that you could load and, and, and perform on those instruments and sync it all together and make your own masterpiece, uh, whatever that happened those, to be. For those of you who remember what I did in the showcase, those brass pieces, uh, those were done using sonar, a- antiquated uh, software for sure. Oh man. Yeah. Oh man. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Good. Yeah. Um, so, so going from there, you know, pro tools became, you know, more accessible. So we ended up uh, switching you know, to Pro Tools and and Avid has really, uh, you know, taken the reins on, you know, making Pro Tools accessible and um, that sort of thing. So we teach- Wait, uh, if I could step in for a minute. Pro absolutely. Tools is the industry standard recording program. Right. Uh, so that the people who are trained in it at Berkeley uh, can interface and work professionally with, you know, almost any studio in the country. Absolutely. Yep, that's right. So Berkeley teaches the the assistive music technology course. They teach um, uh, Pro Tools and they teach Sibelius. So not only, um, and this this goes directly in line with the Berkeley curriculum because Berkeley uh, Berkeley doesn't just want their students to be able to you know produce and record their own music, but they also want their students to be able to write out scores and charts uh, for, for, you know, bands or orchestras or whatever they feel like they need to do in their professional life. So by using um, these solutions with adaptive technology, we're able to directly, uh, you know, play on an equal playing field with our sighted counterparts and in the industry. Um, so the lab is, is, is outfitted with a, few, um, with a few workstations with both of those programs on it. You know they've got mixers in there. They've got um, they've got audio interfaces in there, um, and they're the instructor Chi Kim teaches uh, you know both both the Sibelius component and uh, the music notation component as well as the uh, recording and sequencing component. And my job when I was at, when I was there was to help students with uh, you know projects and things like that at night. So if students came in and they were like, man, I've got to get this, I've got to get this project done for my music theory class. I would say, okay, um, I'm here to help you if you have any technical difficulties or if you need, you know, help with a concept or something like that. And, um, you know, sometimes we'd get it, we'd, we'd all get in a jam and we'd have to call, we'd have to call up Chi um, and be like, hey, we're having some sort of really ridiculous computer issue and we're not sure what it is. And so sometimes he'd be able to walk us through, you know, he'd be able to walk us through fixing those and um, we would just work through it all together. And it was always, it was always a good, that was a good experience. Uh, uh, 
And it led actually as a, it would served as a catalyst of not only working with the students on their, their technology skills and their, their, their music skills, but it, but it opened up the door to talk to students about life. And I thought more than the technology for me, it was, it was just as important to mentor these students about, about, you know, life things about, you know, life issues and, and things like that. So that was, that was very helpful. That was, that was very helpful to a lot of people. And, um, and I, I got a lot of joy in, in, in mentoring students that way. Hey, hey Wayne, uh, yes, besides, besides um, the technical assistance that we're getting, how about some of the really, you know, uh, basic stuff like solfege, harmony, and so on? Uh, what kind of support, Braille support, or whatever kind of support uh, is offered in that program for students? Good question. Really good question. So. Um, so Berkeley does have an accessible ear training website where you can go and um, you can go access a lot of the, the, uh, all the dictation examples. Um, you can get, uh, I, there are, there are hard copy uh, versions of the ear training and harmony books in the library. If you want to read them in hard copy Braille, you can do that. Um, whenever students, uh, whenever students get, uh, assignments in class if they're handouts um, we also that they also have a sighted lab assistant that works in the program that you can take a student can take their scores to and the student's job is to the the sighted lab assistant's job is to scan it and uh, convert it into a Sibelius file so that the student can read it and uh, you know, fill in any you know blanks or something like that on the computers in the lab, or use their own laptop to do it. Um, so, and then of course, you know, uh, students can um, you know also run things through the uh, Office of Disabled Student Services if they need accommodations. I think they actually ha they have a, a testing center now where students can go take um, exams. That's not, uh, you know, that's that's in the 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 you know department of the Office of Disabled Student Services. Um, so that's grown a lot over the past couple of years. Um, Are you at all using Bill McCann's scanning program? Yes, that that is program. yeah that is there. Uh, that is um, Goodfeel is is definitely in in the lab. Um, and, and what does it do? Goodfeel. Uh, is a braille music translator so it also works in conjunction with another program called sharp eye so uh a student or you know the or the lab assistant can um you know put in a piece of music and um you know scan it with a you know a little flat band scanner or uh, we have uh, they have a hover cam in there also um so they could use that and uh you know scan it in that way um and then they can also as though from there um, when the student opens it in a uh, good feel, they can actually look at the Braille on a refreshable Braille display, or they could emboss it and turn it into hard copy Braille. Also, the other thing, though, I think a lot of students are, are, are finding that they can um, read with Sibelius a bit faster. So a lot of times uh -huh. what happens now is the, the, the lab assistant will use another program like PhotoScore or or you know something like that you know a more standard um, OCR uh, program to scan in things and then 
uh, they will convert it into a Sibelius file straight away. And then the student uh-huh. can access it electronically. Um, so, so there's, so it, it just, it really depends on which way the student prefers to work. Uh-huh. Um, also forgot to mention that the notation component of the, of, of, of the class also yeah. includes some basic Braille music training. You so I, I would very much like if there are folks with questions to ask Wayne to do so. Uh, I believe it's Nancy who has a question. Okay. Nancy. I just wanted to know, because it sounds like you were very much instrumental in helping uh, the students who came, you know, to uh, work with Pro Tools and, and um, well, I suppose before that, Sonar and Sibelius. But who taught you those things? Um, I took the classes. Did you learn them at Berkeley or did you? I did. I did. Oh, I did. It was, okay. it was a funny, it was a funny position because, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I knew the skills that I needed, but I also knew that I didn't have them. <laughs> so Why? I needed the program. I needed the program to be created so that I could get them. <laughs> so that was a, that was kind of a funny position to be in because it was like, yes, I'm the, I'm trying to be the voice for this, but yet I also need the skills. So that was kind of a that was kind of a funny funny way how that worked. Well, you you were the you were the, you were the reason in part the program was designed. So of course you had to get those skills, and it was great that you learned through that program, so you could then teach others through that program. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Nancy. So if there are any questions, let us know, and I'll, I'll interrupt our conversation because I want to turn a corner. And talk about, Wayne, um, your interest in the, I, I, I want to say Baroque trumpet, but you call it something else. So talk natural, about that. Natural. Natural. Thank you. Yeah, natural nat- trumpet. And I'll, 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 I'll clear up the distinguisher here. No, no, please do. Uh, uh, so, but we, we're, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time, but so talk about that, that sort of change in your, in your, in your professional life. When I was a student, when I this is while I was at Berkeley, I was uh, in the the Berkeley Contemporary Symphony Orchestra, and one of the members of the trumpet section, um, we were hanging out late one night in his dorm, uh, drinking. Of course, we were definitely we were definitely going through some wine one night, and um, he showed me. He was talking about his trumpet teacher that he had, and he was saying that, oh yeah, you know my my trumpet teacher plays Baroque trumpet, and he plays all these historical instruments and i was like oh really okay like that's really cool um tell me more about this and so you know he started going on and on about you know how he you know sort of you know got into you know playing baroque trumpet and he you know ended up recording the bach brandenburg concertos on sony and um i was just like oh my god like i have to hear this do you have a recording with you and uh he put it on and it was the bach brandenburg Number two, if you guys, if you guys don't know, uh, that's the big trumpet feature uh, that that Bach wrote. And so, um, I was used to hearing Winton play it. So when Tom put this recording on, um, I was immediately just shocked at how much smaller the ensemble was, and I was also shocked at at how much warmer the instruments were, and 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 they kind of had a softer sound and i was also shocked at how much warmer and kind of more delicate the trumpet was and it was just very eye-opening and and one of the other things that i noticed right away was that i could hear the counterpoint 
so much more clearly because the balance was so different. It was like pieces of a puzzle that fit together. Um, so I got the files from Tom and I took it, took it all home. And man, I just lived with these Bach Brandenburg concertos for months. And it was just so chilling. Every time I heard it, I was just, and, and it was also uh, interesting to me that they recorded at a lower pitch level. They recorded it at, at, at A equals 415 rather than 440. You know, Baroque pitch is really all over the place. And, and, and 415 was a good approximation that the early music crowd uses to, um, uses to differentiate themselves from the modern crowd who plays at 440 all the time. Um, so that's a good distinguisher you're always going to hear a lot of times you're going to hear historical performance recordings. They're going to be at that lower pitch level. So let's fast forward about eight years later, I was doing, um, I was doing uh, outreach with uh, um, a summer organization called the Boston landmarks orchestra. And we were doing um, instrument playgrounds so that little kids could um, little kids could, uh, you know, get a chance to, you know, you know, play, you know, check out brass instruments, woodwind instruments, strings, you know, that sort of thing. So a friend of mine who was helping me out with the brass table, helping me manage that. And a little bit later, uh, you know, a few years into our friendship, he got the Baroque bug also. And, you know, I'd been checking out recordings of like Nicholas Eklund and, you know, a lot of, you know, a couple other Baroque trumpet players and, and, and that sort of thing. So um, my, my friend, uh, his roommate studied harpsichord at Longy School of Music in their early music department, but he also played trumpet in his undergrad. So he was interested in the historical performance thing too. So he actually went to, uh, this is my friend's roommate, just to make sure I'm clarifying that. He went, to, the roommate went to this workshop uh, by this guy named Bob Barkley. And Bob Barkley uh, builds or, or, you know, has a, had a Baroque trumpet workshop where you could go and build your own natural trumpet. You paid like $800 or whatever, and you got all the brass and all the materials and you built your own instrument. Um, so I, I went to um, this guy's house and Tyler had got a Baroque trumpet, which was a trumpet that he purchased and it had... Um, it has vent holes in it. So on the second yard of the instrument is where vent holes would be placed. And some instruments have three holes and some instruments have four. Um, my friend Tyler bought a four-holer. And the holes basically, um, if you lift your, your finger, it, 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 it tunes the note that is out of tune. There, the, the natural trumpet has, because it's built on the harmonic series, it has notes that are inherently out of tune and you have to bend the partials around, bend the notes that are out of tune to get them in tune. Um, so Zach built, the, his roommate built a natural trumpet and Tyler had a Baroque trumpet. Most people who go into historical performance practice who are wanting to do trumpet, most of them do Baroque trumpet because they're afraid of dealing with the uh the quirks they're afraid of dealing with the 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 um the little idiosyncrasy idiosyncrasies i can never say that word that that come with playing an uncompromised instrument so back to back to the 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 story just for a brief moment 
I, I went over to their house and, you know, Zach had built this horn and I really wanted to check it out. So I went there and um, uh, Zach was like, yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you check out the horn. Uh, this is a, this is a 1630, uh, around 1630 copy. Um, it's got a conical bell. Um, here's a mouthpiece, you know, just, you know, kind of see what you think of it. And so I sat, I was just kind of casually, you know, just sitting in a chair <laughs> and, you know, working with this thing. And um, man, guys, I got to stop and have like an emotional moment for a second, because I mean, when I played the first notes that I played on this instrument, I mean, it was absolutely just mind blowing how little effort it took to get the sound to come out. I mean, it was just such a wide open landscape. And it was also so mind boggling, uh, you know, just how slippery of a slope it was, you know, getting around the instrument, but I was, I was slowly earing my way through it. And um, it was just very humbling to be just taken back to this sort of a foundational moment where you're really just discovering the raw mechanics of how your your instrument works i i i felt like you know all of these guideposts from valves and valve slides and whatnot had just been stripped away and and i was left with this raw foundation and so i asked zach after this you know eye-opening experience i didn't really tell anybody about it honestly because i sort of thought they would all think i was nuts <laughs> So I asked, I asked Zach, I was like, Hey, can I borrow this instrument from you? I, you know, I, I don't know how I would ever get access to an instrument like this. Otherwise, um, a couple months later, I went back, played it again. You know, he ended up letting me have it. And so I kept and this, that, this, I, I need to interrupt you because we are well over time actually. Yeah. 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 Um, so from that, what you will hear, uh, 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 the, for the rest of the show is a wonderful presentation that we only played part of for the, sh for the most recent showcase about this natural trumpet. And um, I, I, we hope it will um, enrich your musical experience. It sure enriched mine when I heard it. So I want to thank you, Wayne, for being part of this podcast series. It's been really fascinating to hear all your stories. And I know you're continuing to develop musically and spiritually too. Uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing more of your story as things develop. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I hope to, um, I hope to go to uh, Europe at some point and study, uh, study natural trumpet under uh, Jean-Francois Madeuf in, in Basel. Um, I found out about him uh, shortly after I started uh, playing natural trumpet. And, um, you know, uh, if it works out, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, but I'm hoping to really pursue this seriously because I know that I have, um, I have a gift for it. And I have a love and passion for educating everybody about early music. And um, really I just think it's, it's fantastic. You really do have a gift. It really is extraordinary. So we look forward to playing that as part of the show. Thanks again, Wayne, for, for coming on board. And um, we'll look forward to hearing more about you in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hello. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Wayne Piercy, and I'm going to talk about the natural trumpet and two 17th century composers who helped the trumpet evolve into the solo and orchestral instrument of today. First, let me give you a brief description of what this instrument actually looks like. It consists of about eight feet of tubing that has been wrapped twice. 
Between the bell and lead pipe section is a wooden block wrapped in twine. This keeps the two halves separated. The bell also has a decorative garland around the rim as well as a decorative ball, usually made of silver, closer to the wooden block. A tassel hangs from below the instrument, adding further decoration. The instrument comes with several crooks, which are additional pieces of tubing that can be inserted into the end of the lead pipe. Adding the crook puts the instrument into a different key. Throughout most of the Middle Ages and continuing into the Renaissance, the trumpet was used for signaling and communication in the military. Gradually, composers and performers became more aware of its technical capabilities. I will now play a solo piece written by Girolamo Fantini, one of the first composers to give the trumpet a voice outside of the military setting. What you just heard was the last piece in Fantini's method book, Moto per imparare a suonare di tromba. Fantini was born in 1600, and by the 1630s, he was known as the greatest trumpeter in Italy. You may be saying to yourself at this point, I like the sound of what I heard, but why is everything so out of tune? The reason for this is because the trumpet of this era can only play notes of the harmonic series. Or, more simply put, the notes of a major scale with a few additional notes. Fantini showed players that it was possible to use the entire harmonic series to play melodies, as well as to use lip bends to create other notes. These techniques would be used by composers throughout the next century. To learn more about Fantini in depth, I would encourage you to look at an article on the Historic Brass Society website, as well as watch a video from my teacher, Julian Zimmermann, who elaborates on Fantini's contributions to the trumpet. I would next like to introduce a composer who followed in Fantini's footsteps, Heinrich Ignaz Franz von Bieber. Although he is best known for his contributions to violin repertoire, his contributions to the trumpet as a solo instrument cannot be ignored. Bieber used Fantini's note-bending technique to create melodies, but he went further in his experimentation with his compositions for both trumpet and violin, including experimenting with alternate tunings.
I will demonstrate Bieber's innovative qualities by performing his duet number 11 in G minor. You'll notice that this is a very unstable key for the instrument, requiring that the players be very accurate in the placement of each note. Now, I would like to close with Bieber's duet number no. 5 in C major, a much happier place for this instrument. I sincerely hope that you have enjoyed this presentation and that you have found this brief history of the trumpet fascinating. Thank you. is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org mainstream. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at acbradio.org and please feel free to check out our website www.friendsinart.com Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.